Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener. You'll have ad-free episodes and join us on our monthly Zoom calls with other podcast listeners and get to know the community at wearelatech.love. Linked in the show notes. Then I started Lightsprite because what I kept seeing in each one of these instances, whether I was working for an insurance carrier, whether I was building new technologies or creating partnerships with companies who were building healthcare-based technologies, there wasn't a focus on the end user all the time. I'm Alex Bloomberg, host of the podcast Startup, and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. My name is Esprit Devora, born and raised L.A., and I created We Are L.A. Tech in 2012 to unify the community. Podcast launched in 2014, continuing to help people find the best talent, to connect with each other, to form awesome relationships. So proud of this show. Enjoy. Hi, this is Joseph Ogin. And I'm a product manager. I built platforms used by AOL, Coca-Cola, and National Geographic. I love listening to We Are LA Tech because Esprit and her team really make it easy for us to understand the LA Tech community and really break down how companies and users can utilize this new emerging technologies to build businesses and connect with their communities. You can follow me online at josephhogin.com. That's Joseph Hogin, H-O-L-G-U-I-N.com. Hello, welcome back to the We Are LA Tech podcast, spotlighting LA tech companies and talent. And this is a welcome back because uh, hopefully you've been listening to We Are LA Tech for a long time. Uh, welcome back because uh, I am Dave Whalen and I've been on the We Are LA Tech podcast three or four times over the past few years, but kind of a welcome because this is actually my very first time as a guest host for We Are LA Tech. So uh, welcome from that standpoint. And uh, I am so excited to be doing my first We Are LA Tech podcast with someone I've gotten to know over the past year uh, via uh, an organization called Women Founders Network. So uh, Swati Survi, uh, welcome. Let's just kick things off and uh, just you know, tell us a little bit about who you are and uh, and what you're doing, and then we'll get into the hard questions. Sure, I am Swathi Survey, founder and CEO of Lightsprite. We game your health. We are a therapeutic gaming platform, and our clinically validated games uh, and data insights empower people to manage chronic health conditions and improve outcomes. Um, our first game is in around mental health. So it, it is called Cinesprite. It's a clinically validated game that inspires, empowers people, um, and brings joy to individuals as they take care of their mental health. I want to get into sort of how you got into this, uh, why you're doing this, but clinically validated game, that, uh, that's a phrase that you don't typically hear very often. So what does that mean? What is, what is clinically validated and how, is, you know, how do you clinically validate a game? 
Sure. Um, so there are a lot of different ways you can receive clinical validation. Um, but the notion, the, the concept of clinical validation means that there's been um, some level of peer review, um, independent peer review of your results. So that generally means it's a group of subject matter experts who've looked at your data um, and your results and have determined that it follows best practices um, in collecting the information and the analysis has been done in a way that um, shows um, that the results are, are following, are, are real for lack of better terms and you're not making it up. And that's what clinically validated means. Um, another piece of that is then it, there's publication in journals or presentations at conferences that are, are gen- industry level conferences for health experts um, as well. Um, and so that's what clinical validation means. So we've had journal publications. Um, we've received a financial award from the U.S. Surgeon General Award from the U.S. Surgeon General for our work, um, for some of the results that we achieved. Um, and then um, we've also done a variety of case studies and presentations to um, at, at industry organizations such as Stanford MedEx, the American Psychiatric Association, American Psychological Association, American North American Primary Research Group, um, American College of Pharmacy. Um, so a variety of different um, organizations where we've presented our results. Got it. So there's a lot of a lot of science, a lot of research, a lot of uh, um, I mean, as you're saying, validation behind this. Uh, I know you've been at this for a long time, and I want to come back to that kind of what that journey has looked like with with Light Sprite. But how did you even end up doing this? What were you doing before Light Sprite, and kind of what did that process lead you, or how did that process lead you into Light Sprite in the first place? Yeah, that's always. Um it's always really interesting, you know, individuals' uh, journeys. And in my case, I've been interested in the intersection of healthcare and technology um, or health and technology for, you know, since I was, you know, a teenager or so, right? Um, that's always been, a, a, that, that mashup, if you will, we call it a mashup, was always interesting, interdisciplinary intersection. And so I studied biomedical engineering um, as an undergraduate and did some graduate work there. And then I became uh, interested um, in looking at opportunities that would allow me to continue that, that intersection. And uh, coincidentally, my first job, um, my first real corporate job was at Eastman Kodak. Um, <laughs> I know in one of your podcasts with Spree, you talked about Kodak. Yeah, it's a, low, it's a it's a classic classic name for sure. But uh, so, what were you doing at Kodak, and why? Uh, and Kodak in New York, or uh, like where were you? I was in Rochester, headquarters, corporate HQ. Um, I was in R and D, so I'm technically an imaging scientist on top of all this. So they had they had one of the first, um, you know, now incubators, internal incubators are are are, are pretty well known. But back then, um, I'm really dating myself. This is like the late '90s, early 2000s. There wasn't much of that. So and then it was one of these clandestine type of things where nobody even in the company knew it existed. So I was in this group that was 
you know, chartered to create new business opportunities, taking advantage of digital um, formats. So um, it was about 100 research scientists, engineers, business people all coming together. It was, I was an entrepreneur in residence and we had Greenfield, like we had been given the license to like go study whatever we needed to um, go and identify growth areas. And at that time I had said that the growth area was going to be the application of technology um, to healthcare, but so you could build technologies that patients could use. That's about 15 years before digital health became a thing. Um, but that was the timeline we were looking at. We were looking at technologies and business opportunities that would grow within five to seven years to be two to $300 million. And so I started this journey very, very early looking. And I started working in wearables um, back then. So even at, at Kodak, you were working with wearable technologies? Yeah. Yeah. We were, um, I was starting to look at that. And because of that work, I was recruited by Nike um, at that point to um, help them look into the wearable technology space. And this was after they had a very successful launch with their pedometer and their MP3 player. So just around that time, you might recall that that made a lot of big splashes. So I was recruited to help them build that next generation of wearable tech. Um, and so my patents that I wrote for the company were the first of, in wearable tech for them. Wow. So you've gone from one one global brand that uh, everyone knows or at least used to know, and you are, uh, I know people won't see it, but you are wearing your, uh, your, your Kodak sweatshirt right now. So uh, just to show that the Kodak brand is still out there, but you went from, you know, a brand that used to be one of the biggest brands in the world to a brand that is still one of the biggest brands in the world. And, uh, you know, everyone knows the, you know, Nike swoosh is sort of right up there with the Apple logo and, uh, you know, Golden Arches and, you know, a few other brands that, you know, everyone in the entire world knows. So um, I'd love to hear about that transition, sort of like what that was like going from a, what, 200-year-old company or a 100-plus-year-old company to, you know, to a, you know, company that was only, uh, you know, 30, 40 years old and, you know, still, you know, you know, still kind of figuring out this whole branding, especially in technology. Well, it was interesting because I was actually, um, at the time I was there, was 100 years old. I was in the centennial annual report. To your point about brand value, the swag that we would get at Kodak was just so awful because when I worked there, because it was always made for, no, it was made for like golf dads. And I'm, I'm a woman of color. Okay? So none of the shit ever fit to begin with. Because I, I, was, I was, you know, a, a small. Okay, back then, I'm not that big in right now, but, <laughs> but, but, you know, and it was these horrible, I, I would always give the, the clothes to my dad because they, they just wouldn't fit me. And they were horrible and awful, no design. And so, so I was walking through the mall, like literally three or four years ago, and in Forever 21, they had all of these things that were Kodak branded and they were look, look so cool. I was like, what the hell? Like, why wasn't this around when I was that age? <laughs> so, so now, and now it's a thing. It's so retro to your point. Um, but there is that point of brand value. And when I went to Nike at that point, um, yeah, they were probably only, um, I think they incorporated in 72. So they're about 30 years old at that point. 
Um, and so it was very different. Um, I think they were at 11,000 people at the time that I, so it was still pretty big, but much smaller than, than Kodak at the time, which was like near a hundred thousand. Um, so yeah, it was very different. Um, but you know, Nike was very much about branding and, you know, they were both direct to consumer companies, which, which was really interesting, but in many ways also very, very different because their business was very different. Um, Nike's product turns were, you know, 45 days, 90 days, like the, right. And that's how they, they actually, um, they, they were highly disposable. The product was highly disposable, right? And they, it needed to be because they needed the person, the, the, the gear heads, the shoe heads to like keep buying something, right? So there's always a new, something new coming out every 45 days to 90 days. That's pretty consistent in retail, right? So <clears throat> whereas Kodak was a little different in the sense that their consumable was film at the time, Right. And so that was another thing. Which never changes. Right. That was the whole point was Kodak should keep on making exactly the same film over and over. That's the whole brand promise is that, you know, Co you know, Kodachrome, you know, Paul Simon sang a sang a song about it. I mean, it's like the colors, it's the consistency. It's, you know, the same every time as opposed to Nike, which is different every time you walk into the store. Yeah. And so, I mean, and it drove it drove de decisions differently. Nike was a lot, very much about understanding um, culture and what was what was fresh and, and relevant now um, as a result. And it had to be where, you know, to your point, and there was a lot of, and, and both companies had a position of technical, technical, um, uh, technical performance, right? I mean, ultimately there was a lifestyle component of Nike, but, but its roots came from technical performance, right? That's why a lot of it, you'd see them out, see it on the field on game days. So it had technical performance in there as well. But to your point, what drove the sale for the company was that ability to stay fresh and relevant to the consumer. Whereas Kodak was almost like, that's the clo closest thing you had you know, film and, and film motion or, or still images. That's the closest thing you had to a time machine. So you kind of had to, you kind of had to be consistent. Yeah, that's interesting. So, okay. So you were in this, you know, big old company that's all about consistency. You moved to a also big, you know, not as old company that's all about newness. And you were working on this cutting edge of technology at Nike, which, uh, um, you know, I think still continues, you know, continues to evolve. How did you get from Kodak to Nike to, to Lightsprite and, and sort of what, what drove that? And we're probably missing a few steps along the way, but, uh, cause you still haven't told me how you're an expert in, uh, um, in clinically validated, uh, you know, games and, and, you know, mental wellness, right? So how did we get from, uh, film to wearables to wellness? Yeah. So um, there are a couple of steps along the way. And, and I mean, working in both of those companies, you really begin to understand what's important for an end user, how to think about the end user. Um, Kodak also at the time had, you know, they were the largest, one of the largest, you know, x-ray pack systems manufacturer. They had, and they actually had a diagnostics division that they sold off to J&J &J right when I started. So they had a very strong foothold in healthcare. 
so so uh, that was one of their main business units. So um, understood that, but then there was the whole consumer angle um, as well. Um, and at Nike, you know, you definitely learn about consumer focus. And then from there, um, I was doing my MBA um, concurrently at the time when I was at Nike. And then when I graduated, um, I ended up working for a brief stint in radio, believe it or not. <laughs> I was doing business development <laughs> at Public Radio International. So I did some, wow. I did that. Wow, PRI, and, um, I hear them advertise all the time. So uh, when I listen to when I listen to radio, so PRI, got it. Yeah, so, but again, um, a lot of that work was also on, they had new electronic-based distribution platforms. Um, so think podcasts and stuff. So this was around 2003, 2004. Um, that was that format was beginning to to become more popularized. Audiobooks. Some of the first content on iTunes was PRI content. So understanding monetization models, commercialization pathways, adoption rates, right? Like so all of those things were really important. And then I I joined Microsoft. So at this point I'm in Minnesota and I wanted to take a shift. And I wanted to get back out to the West Coast. Um, and so I was recruited by Microsoft. So um, there and I did a variety of roles and I learned about software development. Um, and and what, is it, what does it mean to deploy enterprise level software? So I took a little bit of a diversion, but each of those experiences definitely gave me insights in a variety of different ways, whether it was, you know, with PRI or a lot of legal documents, we we're always working with talent content, storytelling, um, to Microsoft, um, software deployments. And then I came full circle in my last role there. I was there for five years and my last role was in MSR, looking at the applications of artificial intelligence and machine learning to healthcare data sets. Um, and there I was working with research scientists across the globe, um, identifying projects and demonstrating the applicability of that, of that particular, uh, that field of computer science into healthcare. Um, and that was in 2010. Got it. So still, you've always been very early. It seems like you're you're early in all these health tech things, but there is definitely a story building about how you make the leap to, to light spread, it seems like. Because each one of these were instrumental. That's why it's, uh, it, it is rather of a long build. But then I was recruited by T-Mobile because of my work um, in, a, in, in healthcare and early emerging technologies. They had an incubation group. So at the time in the U.S., mobile in 2010 was beginning to be, get a lot of adoption. So I was recruited and I worked on mobile app development um, as, and looking at partnerships in, in, in healthcare focused types of experiences on mobile. They had a, this was at the time when AT&T was a, a potentially buying the company. And so it was just a disaster after <laughs> for a while. So um, I ended up I ended up launching a mobile app, which was really cool. Um, it was like there it, it was launched at CES and everything, and I and it was the first the company's first real announcement of anything new post the merger didn't go through, so post merger. And then um, I went to Primera Blue Cross and worked in an insurance company and corporate strategy around the ACA. 
Um, then I started Lightsprite because what I kept seeing in each one of these instances, whether I was working for an insurance carrier, whether I was building new technologies or creating partnerships with companies who were building health healthcare-based technologies, there, there, there wasn't a focus on the end user all the time, right? Like you had to focus on that. And, and it wasn't so much about what you were building, but how were you motivating somebody? And I'd seen elements or work like that done through my tenure. And actually the first application of gaming I'd seen was in, in, in Seattle. Um, and it was at the University of Washington. And they had had a peer-reviewed journal publication around how VR could help with pain management. And that was in the 2000, early 2000, it was in 2000. It was that, that it's been around for this long, right? And so, you know, flash forward, it's like 2013, 2014. And I'm still, I'm seeing peer-reviewed journal papers on exercise, but nothing around chronic condition management. And there still aren't a lot of commercially available solutions. And so one, there wasn't any technology extensively being built for chronic condition management, but I also began to see consumer appetite um, and acceptance. Um, at that point, we had been very popular. Xbox came out with its Connect platform, and there were a lot of extra gaming type of applications. So, so I, it all kind of accumulated. But then also that whole piece on data, because one thing about the LightSprite platform is the data that it it delivers back to a clinician, an insurance company, or an employer. Um, and so, and, and so the enterprise aspect of it also kind of fills in. And so using that data, the data that we collect, you can apply AI and machine learning, um, to it to now build predictive models, um, based on your. Clearly the need is there. And I think you've, you've, you're doing a wonderful job of explaining why the world needs this, uh, based on what you had seen. Um, but still you had worked for. You had worked for Kodak and Nike and Microsoft. Uh, you know, I mean, it seems like the smallest company you ever worked for was P PRI, probably. So you've worked for some massive organizations where, you know, there's you're able to do some big things. There's probably a lot of job security there. What was the what was the leap to uh, you know to go out on your own and and start this company, which is uh, someday will be uh, maybe as big as all of those companies combined, but right now it's you know it's it's still it's still a little smaller. But so you know, kind of what was the was there a a moment where you walked into the office and just said, "This is not what I want to be doing. I really want to focus on this this new project," or kind of what was that driver? Well, co coincidentally, even though these were big brands, my role in particular was probably one of the most inherently unstable because every time if, if there was some sort of downturn or uh, the business conditions changed or revenue changed, the first thing they cut is development. So it was highly unstable um, because we weren't operations, right? We weren't keeping the lights on. We were forward looking. So that was that was actually quite a challenge, and so I was used to that instability, believe it or not. Because uh, so startups come naturally to you at this point because you sort of know that uh, things can change at a moment's notice. Anyway, well, in our case, right? Because I was we were strategic, right? But we weren't. You could argue we weren't necessarily essential, right? Even though you, for, even in the case of Kodak, I mean the the work that the group I was in. We created so many patents that was like probably, I think when they 
divested all the assets from the company. The most, one of the more valuable, most valuable thing was the patent portfolio. And I think what I read or what I heard from colleagues, the most valuable were the patents that came out of my group. So um, it's non-trivial, right? But, <laughs> but it doesn't keep the lights on and doesn't bring money in. So I was used to it, um, but I think there, there definitely was an instance. You know, I was, uh, I had already kind of gone down this pathway at my last, in my last role. And what did it for me was I was really deftly, like I, I, there was a period of a month where I was just, I kept getting sick and, you know, just like horribly sick, like flu, like it was like the cold season. Right. Um, and so I just kept getting hit by one bug after another. So I was just deathly ill. I'm on the floor, uh, you know, so I could work. I was like laying down and I was on my, on my, on my living room floor, propped up on a pill with my head on a pillow and my laptop on my stomach, just typing away um, at, at, at an application that was for my startup, right? It was after hours and stuff. And I was willing to do that, but um, and in that, when, when I said, okay, if I'm willing to do that for this, then this, this is the thing. Cause there were a ton of other ideas I had looked at. I looked at clothing rental in 2001 for women. Like that was one idea, which is now a billion dollars. You've been ahead of the market with everything. <laughs> I had thought about that. And I'm like, nah, that's not it for me. Um, the, the gig economy, I thought, what if you could have a marketplace for people who wanted part-time work? Wouldn't that be kind of cool? I like nah, I didn't want to do that one. So, um, yeah, there was a ton of other things that I'm just like, that's not really me. But this one really um, kind of resonated, and I'm like, okay, I think I'm the person to 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 drive this particular idea. No, that's 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 awesome. I, I love the fact that you sort of looked at so many different kinds of things where you maybe could have made a difference. You could have you had the technical skills, the creative skills, but it wasn't what you felt the passion for, which it, it really seems like Light Sprite is something where you've you've put your, you know, your whole self into this business to to help people. You know, you described it a little bit and I I, I think and look, I've I've used the app and uh, I mean I'll I'll kind of give my, you know, my summary because I was asking about well, you know, what is a clinically validated game? And, you know, what I like about what you're doing is you you are creating this it is this it is a game. It's a, you know, you use the phrase choose your own adventure. It's kind of a a journey that users can take where you're you're not asking them to spend hours with something. You're asking them to spend a little bit of time and, um, you know, have a little bit of fun, you know, get a little bit of a reward that wants that makes them want to come back again, but also doesn't try to keep them in there for hours on end because you're not creating a game that is like uh, where people spend their entire lives in it. You're creating a game where it gives them enough of a, maybe a, a release or, a, um, you know, release valve, you know, some kind of moving away from what's going on in their life so they can then get back into their life in a healthier way. Is that, is that a fair way of saying it, having, you know, played around with uh, the game a bit? I think that's a very, very accurate way of saying it. I mean, we, we, and I've described this as we, just as you can make a game very engaging and you know, put someone in there for hours on end, you can also make a game that engages someone for a short period of time. Um, and that's how we've designed it. It's, it's what's called a micro intervention. So, and the idea here is, is that it gives you the right amount of support um, when you need it. 
Um, and that's, that's a big problem, especially in mental health more often than not when someone really needs help, there's no one around. Um, and, and we've literally been told by parents, for example, we, we target adults, but what ends up happening is the adults are playing and then the kids see what the adults doing. They're like, well, what are you doing? I want to play. And in one instance, and, um, a woman who had a daughter who had severe panic attacks to the point where she'd have to go to the school to pick her up as a teenage daughter. The daughter came home one day and told her mom, it was during finals week, she like, I had another panic attack. And the mother was like surprised that she didn't hear about it. And then she's like, well, what happened? She goes, well, I went into the bathroom and you know, we have a game character, Socks the Fox. And like, I, I breathed with socks in the bathroom and, um, I went on my way. Socks is always in my backpack. So, um, and that's exactly what it's designed to do, um, which kind of, uh, and there are a lot of games, casual games are like that. They're, they're short bursts of interactivity. Um, and so that's the way we've designed attention. Yeah, that that sounds that sounds very cool, and and uh, I know you're you know, you're still in kind of the the early stages of I guess launch in terms of you know getting this getting this out there. But how you know how are people finding out about this right now? Is this something where um, someone just goes to the app store and finds it? Is this something where it's recommended to them? What's that process of uh, like why would someone be looking for Light Sprite and how would they find it? You can go to the, the, the game itself is called Cinesprite and it's spelled S-I-N-A-S-P-R-I-T-E. Um, and they can go to either the Google Play or Apple App Store. And we have a freemium version available. So consistent with our social mission, anyone who needs support can always get support. And so, um, and then if you want the fully unlocked version, um, you can subscribe. But our core, our core business model is we sell to, right now we're selling to employers. So if there are employers out there looking for solutions for their employees to help them with burnout, we'd love to talk to you. Um, also, if you're an employer who has challenges trying to understand what your employees need, our data, our anonymized data can, is uh, very powerful. Um, from that perspective, a lot of employers are finding it very helpful. There's a company in San Francisco that uh, you know has uh, 3,700 former employees who probably should be using this right now. But I don't know how we get to all of the uh, as of this morning former former Twitter uh, employees. But uh, I, I can see the you know it's and it's not just in the tech industry. It's I mean tech industry is stressful, but uh, the work world is stressful. We've talked about this before past two and a half years now have just been incredibly stressful for so many people. And it, it sounds like this is something that everyone, you know, everyone can use. And, and that's kind of, you know, the context that we met. And I'm going to sort of, you know, bring this, uh, you know, bring this around to geography and resources. Uh, and, and you, by the way, you mentioned, well, you mentioned upstate New York, you mentioned Chicago, you mentioned Minnesota, you mentioned Seattle, you know, you've lived and worked all over the place. Uh, we met in uh, in Los Angeles through the context of, as I mentioned, Women Founders Network. Um, and I'd love just to, um, you know, tell me a little bit about that experience and sort of how did you find Women Founders Network? What uh, kind of what spoke to you about that? And, and what was that experience like? You know, it's kind of funny. Um, Women's Founders Network, they're one of the oldest, like I think they were one of the first to you know, support the woman founder. And I had actually applied years ago 
um, I had heard about it through my own research. So I had been um, uh, it involved to some extent, or I had been aware of the organization. I didn't realize they were one of the first at the time. So, um, or early stage. And, and um, I think something came up this year. I think, I think, I, I don't even remember, but I saw some email come through about the pitch competition again like after like i we went we didn't make it at the time we were very early um we didn't have any clinical validation at the time um i think we didn't even have any recurring revenue like super early um so uh i think so i wasn't like my my attention had like shifted elsewhere but this came through through my email and like okay i think this might be an interesting time to apply um, and so I applied and made it through to the finalists. That was how I got started um, with the with WFN, and it, it's been a wonderful experience. I've been involved with WFN for I think five or six years now. Um, it's been you know it is such a really incredible organization. As uh, you know, not to you know, you know talking about sort of the you know, the, the Twitter story or just kind of the investor stories that are coming out, uh, or that, you know, that's been the theme of the past year, I feel like, where, uh, you know, there continues to be not enough uh, investment support for female founders, for founders of color. I mean, uh, you know, there's, there is this disconnect between sort of who are entrepreneurs, what do they want to be building, and who is funding them right now. And I think that Women Founders Network is is one of these organizations and, you know, based in Los Angeles, a lot of mentors and board members here in L.A. But the great thing is that, you know, WFN connects with female founded businesses across across the country. And, uh, um, you know, you're in Seattle a lot. I've actually worked with two Seattle companies uh, via Women Founders Network, uh, you know, a couple of L.A. companies, one that was in somewhere in the Midwest, I think. You know, the great thing is they're they're building this network of not just funders, not just advisors, but uh, you know, really this this sort of network of a it's a support network, and it's it's about finding finding the right ways to connect entrepreneurs to the right sort of potential partners, potential funders, potential uh, you know even you know co-founders or, or leaders and things like that, and. Uh, you know, I know I'm biased because I've been involved, but it's it's definitely a pretty incredible resource that I think is we want founders to know about, uh, especially because if you're in LA, you can be spending time with them directly in person. But even if you're not in LA, there's opportunities to get uh, to get involved. Um, I mean, how how else have you managed to make this make this happen? I know you're uh, um, you're more looking for customers and. Uh, customers and and collaborators right now, as opposed to to funding. But kind of, what is that? What are your needs right now? And and where can you know where can our listeners help in terms of that? You want them to download the app for sure and give it a try because they can do that for free. But how else can people help? How can they support you? Yeah, um, introductions to um, employers. That's one area that we're definitely, um, we are, we are also being considered by insurance companies as well as um, provider, mental health provider groups. Um, So we're doing that. So introductions there. Um, We're looking to hire, expand our team. So we have um, openings um, around the chief uh, clinical officer, chief sales officer, 
or revenue officer, excuse me. Um, so we have openings there. And um, we love to meet um, investors ahead of future raises. So if, if we're not actively raising right now, but um, we are always open to meeting investors in advance of, of any raises that um, we'll have in the future. So um, those are ways that people can help. Um, leave a review. That's another way, a simple thing. If you do play it and you find it helpful, um, please leave a review um, and and let other people know how it has, that, that'll be helpful for other people who need help um, so they can see the impact that it could have um, on other people, on, on others, because that's another problem is it's really hard for people to find solutions that can actually help them and work for them. Got it. And I know there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of founders who listen to We Are LA Tech that uh, are, are probably would love to give this a try. And then hopefully some of them are building bigger businesses that ultimately become uh, those right kinds of enterprise customers. Uh, so as we're kind of winding down here, um, you again, you've worked with some big companies, you got this intense startup uh, where you're trying to help people's mental health how do you stay sane? What, what do you do to stay sane personally? And kind of how do you manage all this? So when the pandemic hit, that's when I realized I had been living the life of a pandemic, like basically the pandemic lifestyle when I started my startup. And what I mean by that is all the issues and challenges that people went through, the sense of isolation, the, 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 the lack of like everything blurring together, um, all of those things, like I went through, in, in, you know, when I started the startup, and it was a transition point. So, as a result, I, I learned a, a few things that that have helped me stay sane now. Um, one, it was really important for me to get out and have regular physical activity. Like I have to get out for my walk. You know, if it's a walk, or now I'm running, um, but something every day. Um, that's like super important. Sometimes I can't get to that all the time, but at least, you know, four to five times out of the week, I'm going to do that. I power walked in the SF, SF airport yesterday just because I knew I wasn't going to get a workout, but I literally walked from terminal to terminal before I got in the Uber to go to my meeting. So I, I feel you, you can find, you can find ways, even if you're not like at home at the gym, whatever. Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and cause as a startup, I don't, I didn't get, I like cut out the gym membership. So everything was outdoors. Right. So in LA, it's even easier to do if you have a sidewalk around you. <laughs> Sometimes that there's no, hard, nobody walks but, in LA. What are you talking about? There's no sidewalks here. <laughs> so I would say, um, that was one really important thing. Um, and then the other thing was really keeping my boundaries around for me, you know, generally speaking, around noon on Friday, I stop working and because I need the four or five hours during the middle of the day to run errands or something. But, you know, come noon, that's my target. Sometimes it's two o'clock in the afternoon or whatever, right? But my, the target is that I turn off Friday afternoon, give myself that breathing room to do some of the things I'm not able to do during the week. Uh, and that also gives me space then to actually have some downtime and have some fun because otherwise if I don't do that and I go up till five o'clock on a Friday um, or, you know, six, then it'll be like six sometimes. Right. And then, then I'm spending Saturday morning running errands and doing all the other stuff I have to do. And I don't really have any downtime. So um, I, I actually, and, and nobody schedules meetings on Friday ever anyway. So um, so I blocked out times literally in the afternoons where 
Um, and that gives me a, a better chance of hitting, being able to go for a walk or exercise. Um, and then I block out my Friday afternoons and I literally will not pick up the computer. I'll, I'll check emails or whatever, but I'm not doing any work for the most part um, until Monday morning. I won't even open it on Sunday night. I will not do that because I find that I burn out. I burn out. I, I know if I, if I don't get 48 and I know you do, you were even trying to do that. You were like, Hey, you want to do this on a Saturday? I'm like, no, <laughs> <laughs> I know. And I'm looking, you know what? It's, it's, it's almost 1215 where uh, we got to, we got to get you off so you can get some errands done and then start relaxing. But, uh, <laughs> uh no, I, I really appreciate that because, uh, it, it is something I, you know, I struggle with and, you know, I, I run Bioscience LA and I, I, you know, advise, you know, advise entrepreneurs and I'm on the road a lot. And sometimes, and, you know, I'm trying to, you know, trying to be a good husband, trying to be a good parent. And it can be challenging if you don't both, not just set those boundaries, but also just, you know, make sure, make sure you're giving yourself the time to do the things that are, that are important. And, uh, you know, there's, there's always more time to do the next thing, but, um, if you miss one of those important things, it's sometimes hard to get back. And so I, I really, I really appreciate that. And uh, um, we'll have you on again and, and I'll, we'll talk about all of your, uh, your cooking that you do on the side as well, because I know you do, you're always cooking things because you're telling me about all the awesome stuff you're cooking and uh, um, trying to try out new pizza restaurants and things like that. So that will be, that'll be an episode too. Cause you know, Esprit had me on multiple times. So uh, we'll find a, We'll find an episode too, but uh, um, just one more time, if you could just tell people um, where they find you, whether it's a website, app store, social media, what's the best way for people to uh, find uh, LightSprite and find CineSprite? Um, you can find CineSprite on the app store. That's the easiest place. And uh, S-I-N-A-S-P-R-I-T-E. Um, our website is lightsprite.com, L-I-T-E-S-P-R-I-T-E.com. Um, you can find me, I'm more of a LinkedIn person, um, for a variety of reasons. So I'm always there. That's my main social media of choice. Um, and, um, yeah, I would love to come back on, you know, I heard that in your, in one of your previous lives, you had this wonderful test kitchen for recipes and stuff. So maybe we do that, that is that. Yes. Oh my gosh. We could, we could do a, this, there's a whole side, uh, um, you know, once you work on that, uh, clothing rental business, you can work, we can work on a, uh, test kitchen business too, but I, I love it. So, uh, lots more. Well, uh, this has been so much fun, um, especially for my, my, my debut, uh, guest hosting here. So Swati, thank you so much for hanging out on the, we are LA tech podcast to connect and collaborate with more amazing people in the LA tech community. Remember to go to the We Are LA Tech Facebook group at wearelatech.com slash community. That's wearelatech.com slash community. You can say hello on social at We Are LA Tech on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. I'm on all those things as at DJ Whalen, D-J-W-H-E-L-A-N. Uh, and I will see you all in the next episode. Bye. And uh, you want to just give a little shout out as well? Yes. Thank you, Dave, for having me on. And a shout out to the Women's Founders Network to getting me plugged into the LA community. Um, it's a wonderful group of women who, and it's a nonprofit. And so if you're interested in supporting female founders, go um, reach out to them. I'm sure they'd love the help. 
Hi, this is Swathi Survey, founder and CEO at LightSprite, and we game your health. I'm based in Seattle, and you're listening to We Are LA Tech. The We Are LA Tech podcast is hosted and produced by me, Esprit Devora, With help from Janice Geronimo. Edited by Corey Jennings. Production and voiceover by Adam Carroll. Music from Jay Huffman Live and Epidemic Sound. The We Are LA Tech podcast is a wearetech.fm production. Thank you for being a listener of the We Are LA Tech podcast. To support and collaborate with the community, become an MVL Most Valuable Listener at wearelatech.love. Linked in the show notes.